0: We are gonna uh, finish. Well, we'll see how far we get. I'm gonna try to finish Romans chapter seven tonight as we get into this. Now, uh, by any chance, anybody watched catching any the World Series games yet? Uh, Phillies and Astros. Okay, uh, Phillies fans, who's voting for the Phillies? Okay, we got a couple. Astros, anybody for the? Ast- okay, we've got we've got one. Okay, we'll, well, uh I you know it's always exciting to watch the World Series and baseball is one of those unique games where. The best thing that can happen in baseball is nothing happening. No, and I'm serious about that. Think about it, that every pitcher wants to pitch a perfect game. And the crowd, although the crowd watches a perfect game, and to me personally, it never gets excited until the ninth inning, right? When, wait, this could, this could happen. We might witness baseball history when a perfect game is pitched. But until that ninth inning, it's kind of like, this is a boring game. Let's go get some more hot popcorn or whatever. Uh, but, uh, uh, of course, obviously in the World Series, we're not seeing any perfect games. But in, in 140 years of MLB history, there's only been 23 perfect games ever pitched. So to pitch a perfect game is a big deal. In fact, actually, one of the most heartbreaking perfect games, I think, that uh, or almost perfect games that happened, took place on June second, 2010. Detroit Tigers pitcher Armando Galarraga found himself on the mound in the top of the ninth, 26 outs, top of the ninth. He had one more out to go. And uh, uh, Jason Donald stepped up to the mound, ready to hit. He hit a ground right side to the infield. Uh, the, uh, The first baseman moved quickly over to intercept the ball. Galarraga beat Donald, to the base, caught the ball the umpire called safe. The scorekeeper of the time marked it as an infield hit, and Galarraga lost his perfect game. The worst part about it is at the end of the game, the umpire admitted it was a bad call. Man, that's rough, right? But you know what? He left it in the umpire's hands. Because uh, that's just the way it goes sometimes. You know, we all sometimes in the Christian faith are trying to pitch a perfect game. But we're trying to do it in our own flesh. We're trying to make that happen. And we get to that ninth inning. We've been doing really well. Things have been going great. And in that ninth inning, with that last pitch, we screw it up. And we fall. We stumble. And then we're just so destroyed that that we thought we were doing so well. Well, tonight in chapter 7, we're going to see... Paul's teaching on this very issue of the Christian life, how we deal with sin in our lives. Now, this evening I'm going to switch from the New King James to to the ESV because I think it's just a little bit easier for understanding. So if you have a New King James, uh, you can obviously read along or you can, we'll put it up here on the English Standard Version, but I I just think that they they did a little bit better job. It's a little less confusing because we're going to get into some... Uh, some of Paul speaking almost in a monologue, and I want to make sure we can grab hold of it. With that said, we're in Romans chapter seven. We're going to be starting out at verse thirteen. Now, I just want to remind you of where we have been at. In verse seven, Paul, or chapter seven, Paul had given this illustration about a married couple and and the fact is is that the 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 spouse had died to the husband and therefore was set free completely from from the marriage and could marry another and of course we, Paul uses this as an illustration to help us understand that that we have actually died to the law and, and we have we are now in Christ and and we're free to be married Uh, to the one from heaven and receive all those blessings in the resurrection. And so Paul uh, has been starting out with this idea. Now, one of the questions we brought up last week was whether or not Paul is addressing the Jewish brethren there in Rome, those Christians who come out of the law, or if he's addressing the whole church, hard to say for sure. And we're going to get into that a little bit more. But I do think that this evening, as we get into the word, uh, there's some questions again about who Paul is addressing and when is he addressing it. And we'll kind of answer though. One, one of the questions and controversies that come up with this section of Romans, in fact, I, I, would, I would say that this is probably the most controversial section of Romans because people question whether or not it's speaking about an individual pre-salvation or an individual who's already been saved and is dealing with carnality uh, and so th- there's this this big question, and we'll get into it, but I, I think some of those things are kind of irrelevant And uh, as we get into this. So with that said, we're going to start out at verse 13 tonight of Romans chapter 7. We will pray. Thanks for reminding me. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord God, Father, we do thank you so much for this evening, and we thank you that we can be together. And Lord, I thank you for my brother Jason, um, and uh, always rooting for us in the stands. And so now, Lord God, we ask that you bless this time in your word, help us, give give us understanding, and help us, Lord, to to, uh, apply it to our lives in a way that we have victory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in Romans chapter 7, verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. Now, as I've said before, there's really almost a sermon in every verse of Romans. We're not gonna go that slow. But let me just help you understand what Paul is asking here. Again, he has finished speaking about the law and how it reveals sin in us. And so he asks, he, he asks a question. He kind of anticipates what, his readers might be thinking and and the question that he anticipate is, "Did that which is good then bring death to me and and so you could say that that Paul is saying, "Did death only come as a result of the law? so if God wouldn't have given the law, could I have possibly not even be put in this situation of death so wait a minute, how is the law good if God gave the law and then it showed me I was a sinner and now death came? Wouldn't I be better just to be ignorant? And, and that's not what Paul is saying. In fact, he says by no means he answers that question. And so what he says is that with or without the law, sin was producing death in me through what is good. And basically the idea, which we've already seen earlier in Romans, is that just because of our sin nature even just having an understanding of what is good, we still sin. And so the law being good only amplifies, or I should say shines a brighter light into how how much of a sinner we are. So in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And so when we when we understand that sin is sin, and we go out and we do, maybe as a carnal person, that thing which which we just do naturally, even though it's sinful. Maybe maybe we talk about somebody, we gossip, we don't even know it's a sin, but yet we hear the law, and the law explains something to be a sin. We, we recognize that we haven't been loving our neighbor as we should. Now it's just amplified. It, it even more shows that, that it, the it, the sin in exceeding measure. Okay, so, so in, in a sense you could say that the law is a measuring tape for your sin. Or the law is a flashlight on your sin and really revealing how dirty it is, okay? Uh, and that, that's really what it comes down to. And so Paul's saying, don't say the law is evil. Well, that moves us into the, the next verse here of verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Okay, okay. So we got to pause here for a moment and talk about this verse. The law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. All right, first of all, flesh, the word flesh there are oftentimes translated carnal. Uh, and uh, that, that idea is that uh, it's characterized by the flesh. And, and Paul uses this term of the flesh to help us understand the sin nature in us. That that's something that came from Adam. And, and it's the, those unspiritual things. And so oftentimes when we speak about somebody being carnal, we're talking about somebody who's being earthly minded or sin minded or the natural man minded. That means not minded of the spirit. And so uh, and I keep saying so tonight. That's my thing, my, key, my catchphrase tonight. For, for we know that the law is spiritual. So this is important to understand. The law comes from God. God is spirit. And so the law, there it is. <laughs> the law of being spiritual and being good, it comes from God. But we have a problem here. Because I am of the flesh. In fact, Paul says, sold under sin. So the slave master who, who purchased me, being sin, now wants to keep trying to reclaim me, and uh, I don't want to be reclaimed. So, so as Luther writes this, uh, Martin Luther wrote, that is the proof of the spiritual and wise man. He knows that he is a carnal, and he is displeased with himself. Indeed, he hates himself and praises the law of God, which he recognizes because he is spiritual. But the proof of a foolish, carnal man is this: that he regards himself as spiritual and is pleased with himself. Now, I, I, hopefully you got that, but the idea is that the, the carnal man uh, who's acting out in his carnality, in his sin nature and his flesh, that man is just pleased with himself and regards himself as spiritual. He's totally content, but the spiritual-minded man is frustrated with himself because the spiritual-minded person understands that the law is good and, and recognizes that the law comes from God and, and, and uh, magnifies the character and the nature of God. It, it shows his standard, and we're displeased with ourselves because we can't keep the law. That's the spiritual man, okay? And so that's where Paul is in this predicament here of, okay, the law is spiritual. I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, verse 15 is when we're going to get into a little bit of a monologue here. And as we get into verse 15, hopefully uh, we're going to find a a lot of comfort. Actually, from 15 on, we're going to find a lot of comfort in this chapter Because I think a lot of us will be able to identify, uh, well I should say, all of us should be able to identify with Paul's monologue coming up here. Because we know that we've trusted in Jesus Christ. We know positionally we stand before Christ, right? We've already been through that earlier on in Romans. We've trusted in him. We've been forgiven of sin. We already understand that we're dead to the law. We're dead to the old way. We're dead to the sin nature and positionally we're before Christ. But let's talk about our experience. Our experience doesn't give us the same. Well, we don't have the same experience as we live out this life. In fact, oftentimes, what we find in our, our everyday experience is we stumble and fall. We sin. And so we understand spiritually what's happening because Paul's explained to us these truths of how God views us. But practically speaking, we're trying to figure out why does this keep happening? Why do I keep sinning? Why don't I have victory over this? Why do I keep submitting myself to the sin nature, submitting my members to sin. And and so now we're gonna get uh, some freedom from this as we talk about it. So verse 15 says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not want to do, uh, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, We're going to stop there and start to unpack this a little bit. First thing I want you to get out of this is that Paul is not saying that we're not culpable or responsible for our sin. Okay, that's not what Paul is saying. Uh, I I know as he ends that saying that uh, it's not me that does it. It's the sin nature. And and, uh, Paul is not bringing us to a place where we go, sweet, I can sin all I want. I'm not responsible. That's not what Paul is saying. Okay, but he is talking about this struggle. And the and first thing I want to say about this is the word sin used here. Uh, in verse 17, it says, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. It's interesting because our English translators uh, chose not to translate a, uh, the definite article. And what is the definite article? The. It's the word the. Okay, so really what we could read is, but the sin that dwells within me. And this is Paul kind of letting, uh, helping us understand this whole idea of not naming a particular sin, but just the sin, okay? So we're really almost looking at sin more as a highly contagious, lethal virus. Now, we've had practice with highly contagious lethal viruses, right? We all have been destroyed from 2020 uh, with this practice of highly contagious lethal viruses. And so uh, understand that that's almost how Paul is using the word sin in us, like this highly contagious lethal virus, which every man, every woman, every child has inherited because every person alive can trace their lineage back To Adam. The presence of the sin gene in our moral makeup is the reason every man, woman, and child commits sin. So, this is one of those things that we can say when people say, Well, I was born this way, we go, Yeah, you were. You were born a sinner. When they try to justify sin by birth, we just can agree with it and say, yeah, that's sin. It's the sin nature. You were born that way. We we all were born into sin, and some of us choose uh, or some of us give ourselves over to certain sins and we allow ourselves to be ruled by those sins. And you can say, I was born an alcoholic. My parents struggled with alcoholism or addiction. So I was, they just passed this gene on to me and I have no other choice. And we'd say, well, guess what? Yes, you were born an alcoholic, but yes, you do have a choice. And we're going to see that wonderful choice here. So Paul here, as he speaks about the sin... He states that I do not understand my own actions. So imagine Paul kind of stepping back, almost in in a third-person perspective, watching what's happening in his own life. He's just considering what's happening. Now, here's the big question. Is is Paul speaking in the present tense as far as this is what he's actually currently struggling with? Or is Paul speaking about past tense uh, to a certain degree, and helping us understand the struggle. And I, I really think that it could be both. I, I think that, that here Paul is helping us understand the practical experience of wrestling with these two natures, this nature of Christ and the nature of Adam that has been put to death as far as God is concerned, but you and I still struggle with it. You and I still might lose our temper when we shouldn't, you and I might still be prone to gossip. When we shouldn't, you and I might still be be prone to do things that we ought not to do. Maybe you and I are still prone to pride, and and and, and or or uh, lust, or I mean, fill in the blank there, uh, whatever it would be to not love your neighbor, to to sin against your neighbor, whatever the case is. Maybe you're prone to deceit. And, and it's just something that you do, not even needing to do it, but you do it. And, or maybe you're prone to covet. As Paul said, when he heard, thou shalt not covet, he was undone earlier in this chapter. And so I think in the practical experience, we can all say that, yeah, I get Paul here. I don't understand my own actions. As I look at myself and I say, man, sitting in church, singing worship songs to the Lord Jesus studying his word, I feel fabulous. I feel great. I feel victorious. I, I love being here with the Lord and with his people and fellowshipping. And then we get on the road and go home and who knows what happens, right? Or who knows what happens tomorrow. And we, we feel that in that practical experience If we were to step back and look and go, I don't even understand my own actions. When I left church Sunday night, I was feeling really spiritual, In fact, I felt equipped and ready for battle, and then, man, I just lost it. So Paul says, "I, I don't understand. As I look out on these actions, he says, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, so that it is good. So basically, the fact that he understands that this is wrong He's saying, "I agree with the law. The law shows that this is bad. This is evil. I shouldn't do this." Now he goes on to say, "So it no uh, uh, so is no longer it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me." Okay, what does this mean? In my mind, I know what's right. In my mind, I know how I should act, but in my flesh. I go and do it. And I don't understand what possesses me so. Briefly, and I forgot to give you this first, turn over to Psalm 73 for a moment. Psalm 73. Um, I forgot the verse reference here, in Psalm 73, as David writes, or sorry, um, as Asaph writes, uh, and he speaks about just the, the it, he what he's speaking about is how he was enticed by the wicked and it, how it seems like they're prospering. And he, he basically states that he almost stumbled. But as he goes on in this psalm, he says... Verse, oh, man, I lost my place here. Okay, sorry, one minute. I got to change versions real quick. Give me one minute here. (laughs) I apologize here in Psalm 73. Stay in Psalm 73. We'll get there. Uh, My bad here. I forgot to mark the reference. Uh, Psalm seventy-three. There we go. Here we go. And then, <laughs> you guys all wait in eager anticipation. Here, I'm almost there, Jason. I'm getting there. I'm. This is so. Yeah. Okay. There we go. I got it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now you're heckling me. <laughs> All right, verse 22. That's what I was looking for. Okay. Actually, back up to verse 21. It says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Now, as as Asaph is recalling this stumbling and the temptation of sin, he's recognizing that Something was different about him. He was brutish. He was like a beast toward God. Now, he, and what is the difference here? Well, the, the the contrast here is between a man, a king, and one who's acting like a beast. Okay, there was something about it. This sin, as he was being. Tempted with it. He just felt like he was acting like a beast. He goes on to verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And we'll stop there. And so Asaph, as he's recalling this, this temptation, this, this uh, enticing sin to, to, to almost uh, want to be like those who were wicked and, and just pursue after riches and all these things, he, he's saying that something was messed up in his head. Something was wrong where he was acting more like an animal and less like a man of God. And that's really where we, what we experience in the practical way of sin, is it just seems like our wits, our mind, our ability to think just goes away. And we lose it. And depending on the depth of the sin and, and the nature of the sin, it can get from bad to cr- total loony bin crazy, where you ask a person, what were you thinking that that would turn out good? And they can't give you any answer. It's like when you speak to a child uh, and they've done something and they think they can get away with it. And you catch them and they just can't even understand why they've done it. So, so Paul writes here in verse 17, uh, it's, it seems like it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Again, he's not ca- saying we're not culpable. He's just saying, he's recognizing this nature. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. Okay, that's key there, sarks. Uh, so nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now we're not talking about f- being filled with the Spirit. Obviously, if the Spirit of God dwells in us, that is good. The Holy Spirit dwelling indwelling in the believer is very good. But what Paul is saying is, in my flesh, there's nothing good that dwells in me. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And we'll see where he's going with this. But the sin nature, as we struggle with it, and as we wrestle with it, we find that it has, can at times have great influence over the believer. And this is what sometimes is hard to square as we try to be holy and we try to be pure and we try to be set apart to God, uh, that we find ourselves almost at a loss sometimes and ready to throw up our hands. And we'll come up with the answer in just a moment. Constable, the preacher, writes, Paul's sinful human nature influenced him to such an extent that he found himself volitionally doing or approving the very things that he despised intellectually. This caused him to marvel. And we all identify with him. Now consider this, you yourself would say the same thing, that intellectually you would understand that, no, I, would, I don't want to do that. I don't want to treat people without love. I don't want to slander people. I don't want to gossip about people. I recognize that God's word says this is evil. Now if you don't recognize that God's word says sin is evil and, and particular types of sin, well that's a whole other issue altogether, but the spiritual-minded person recognizes that, hey, this, it's wrong to lust. It's wrong to commit adultery. It's wrong to fight or be a brawler. It's wrong to be a drunkard. I recognize that. I wouldn't give myself over to that. But then the, center, uh, the, the, the person finds themselves volitionally doing that thing. And we go, what is wrong with me? I don't understand this. And so Paul, as he's speaking about this problem, this contrast in us, he starts to say, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He recognizes that as he sins, he acts against his nature. Remember, what is the new nature? It's that in Christ. We've been born again. We've put the flesh to death, right? And so we we put the old man to death. And so we have this new mind. We've been given the mind of Christ. We have the new nature. But we still have problems at war with that old nature, it seems, or with the flesh. And the new man is in Jesus Christ. So the Christian finds him or herself. uh, that, that We have to own up to our sin. We realize that our impulse to sin does not come from who we really are in Jesus Christ, but from that old flesh, okay? That's the, that's the problem that we're dealing with, okay? And so Paul, as he begins to say this, see, we get to verse 20, and he writes, Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, okay? we've We've kind of heard that. So verse 21, so I find to be find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Now, what are we talking about here, law? Well, this can also mean principle, okay? So I don't necessarily think Paul is at this point in time speaking about the law, excuse me, I don't think Paul is necessarily speaking about the law as far as the Old Testament law here. But he's saying, I, I find it to this principle ha- at work happening that I'm struggling with. And he says, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Anybody ever experienced that in this room? This guy did, does, right? <laughs> uh, you can have every intention to do something, and then you find yourself doing the opposite, right? It's the, it's the uh, hammer and thumb principle, right? The the preacher working on the roof of his house and the little boy standing there just watching the preacher nail the, the roofing shingles. The preacher says, oh, uh, do, do you need something? No. Okay. And he just keeps working away. And then and then the, the preacher just doesn't understand why this little boy is just standing there watching. It's the most boring work in the world. And finally, the preacher says, boy, why are you standing here? He's like, oh, I just want to see what happens when you hit your thumb. Hey. Right? <laughs> It's just the, the hammer and the thumb thing. You, you know, uh, we, we know the good we want to do, but we find that evil lies close at hand. For Look at verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. We can all delight in the law of God. When we read the Ten Commandments, we realize that the Ten Commandments are not keeping us from a good life. In fact, actually, when we look at the Ten Commandments and we say, would I want anybody doing these things to me? Would I want anybody stealing from me? No, I wouldn't want that. Would I want anybody taking my wife or or anybody giving uh, false testimony against me or anybody stealing my things? No, I, I, I wouldn't want that at all. Would I want my children to be rebellious and speaking against me and doing things against me in my household? No, that sounds like a nightmare. I want my children to honor me as their father. We we can go through the old test, the, the the law of God, and go. These things are all really good. In fact, not only are they good for me, they're good for you. They're good for our society and our community. Uh, and th- these things promote the good life. So. <coughs> we can all say that we delight in the law of God. The law of God is not inhibiting us. It's not stealing from us the good things. It's actually keeping, uh, giving us the good life. And so in our inner being, we rejoice. We delight in it. But verse 23 says, But I see in my members another law waging war, or another principle waging war against the law of my mind, And making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And now we get to this point, this war being waged. The old sin master coming back to try to reclaim property that has died. Okay? And and this is what our common experience is. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried to be good. Isn't that the truth? No man knows how bad he is until he's tried to be good. And and as we try to be good, we find ourselves even more at war. Paul delights in the law of God according to the inward man. Paul knows that his real inward man has has delight in the law of God. He understands that the impulse towards sin comes from another law in his members. Paul knows that the real self is the one who does delight in the law of God. I'm I'm back on. I'm, yeah. yeah. Back on my, what you, what you well, there you go.
1: <laughs>
0: tonight's Day Tonight's Day. a night, man. Come on, buddy. I don't want to Got to explain that one to my wife. <laughs> so. okay. Now I smell really much, a lot like coffee. I've got it all everywhere. All right. Like I said, that which I don't want to do, I find myself doing. I am the illustration tonight. <laughs> so, so there we go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> the old man is not the real Paul, though. And that's what's important. The old man is dead. The flesh is not the real Paul. And that's where Paul's coming to. The flesh is destined to pass away. That, that, that's what's going to happen. And what we're going to see is when we, we take part in the resurrection, that wonderful resurrection, the fullness of that victory we have will be finished. And so as we walk in this life, we're going to feel this struggle, this tension. Certainly we don't just give ourselves over to, to the law. But what we can find is there's a better solution. And this is where Paul goes in Verse 24. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's important. Paul doesn't say, how will I be delivered from this body of death? What must I do to deliver myself from this body of death? Paul doesn't ask those questions. He says, who will deliver me? From this body of death. And Paul's on to something there. He's asking the right question. Just for a moment, I want you to, I'm going to read this to, this passage to you one more time. Starting at verse 15. And I want you to listen for all the I and me words. Those first person words. Here we go. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want to. I want. But I do the very thing But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. There's a lot of I's in there. There's a lot of me's, okay? And so Paul, he's helping us understand the problem. I think you and I can all understand this thing where we, we... we come to Christ. We're excited for the new life in Christ. We've been born again. We're excited to live for Christ. And we do so by starting out by trying to keep the law, trying to get better, trying to work harder. But then we find the, the, the more we try to do good, the more we don't keep up, the more we stumble. And so Paul comes to this conclusion, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that is the real key, dear Christians. There's a who, and it has to be Jesus Christ. Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What Paul is saying here is he recognizes that this is not a salvation issue. This is a walking with Christ issue and a dependency on Christ issue. It's no longer he that can do it in his flesh. He's got to just surrender that flesh. It's done. It's over. I'm surrendering that in my mind. I'm focused on Christ. And now I just walk with Christ. I draw closer to Christ. Christ. And I look to Christ for the victories. And that's where we're going in chapter 8. In chapter 8, we're going to move into the idea of the victory, the life in the Spirit. We're going to be so encouraged. But what's the takeaway for tonight? Well, the takeaway for tonight, as we talked about last week, was abiding in Christ. Surrendering yourself to Christ. It's no longer you to defend yourself, it's no longer you to keep yourself, but it's you thinking and walking with Christ. Think on Christ. That that's 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 the total truth of the matter. Fix our eyes on Christ, surrendering to him, recognizing that there is this war that will be being waged, but you dear Christian, focus on Jesus. Consider the wonderful illustration that Peter, the apostle, gave to us on that boat as Jesus came walking out on the water. And Peter said, gave those wonderful words, Lord, call me out to you. I mean, I, that's what I love Peter about that, because for me, I'd be like, oh yeah, I want to go walk on water too. That sounds awesome, right? Call me out, Lord. Who doesn't want to walk on water? I had a dream one time, and it was so real. And I was in a, a, a friend's backyard, and there was a pool, and Jesus was there with me, and he was trying to teach me how to walk on water. But it was an awesome dream. I know it sounds so stupid, but, but in my dream, I was like, I was there with Jesus, and he was encouraging me, and I was like trying to take steps, and I felt like I was like kind of like bouncing down to my knee, but popping back up and just trying, you know, uh, and I was trying to understand what he was teaching me. I, I, it was a great dream, though. Um... And, but anyway, I can imagine being Peter going, oh, this is going to be awesome. I want to walk. And so Jesus says, come. So Peter gets out of the boat in faith. He starts to come, and you're like, whoa. You know the other disciples were like, should have asked. <laughs> right? <laughs> you, you, I mean, come on, Peter, starting to walk. <laughs> and, and, and then when Peter took his eyes off Jesus... Seeing the wind and the waves, he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached down, pulling him out. You have little faith. He, he focused on the wrong thing. Of course, the other disciples were like, told you. Okay. <laughs> But there are times when we start focusing on the flesh, and we start focusing on the flesh to somehow save us from that struggle, and it won't. It's wretched. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus. We focus on him. We walk with him. We continually go to him and surrender to him. Don't give up, dear Christians. As you struggle, the Bible says, Peter says, you haven't struggled to the point Of shedding blood yet. You're not there yet. And eventually, on that day, when the Lord calls you home, the struggle will be over. (laughs) It'll be done. But in the meantime, you fix your eyes on Jesus and you walk with Him. And when you screw up, which you will, you go back to Him and say, Lord, what do I do? And you surrender to Him. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for this evening together, Lord, that you've brought us back. And God, we just make a mess of ourselves at times. Lord, forgive us for the times that we thought we could be holy, that we could accomplish this on our own. And so, Lord, we humbly come before you and we ask for your forgiveness. Lord, we surrender ourselves before you and say, Lord, teach us. We're ready to learn from you. We want to know you. Lord, some of us in this room have been struggling with sin. You just give that to the Lord Jesus now. Just confess it to him. Lord, I'm tired of fighting. Lord, I want to have victory over this. But no matter what, I'm going to continue focusing on you. Thank you, Lord. We thank you for the victory. We thank you that we can know that our lives are hidden away safe with you. Transform us, dear God. We give this this last song to you. May our praise just magnify the work that you've done in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to end with this. Uh, Asaph, as he finished up his psalm, he, he writes this. He says, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. That I may tell of all your works. The Lord God should be our refuge. And as we walk this week in him, you just draw near to him. And you let him be your refuge. And then you're going to get to declare all his wonderful works. May God bless you and keep you this week. May he encourage your hearts and fill you with peace. Amen.